Hi, I'm Deirdre Veldon and this is Confronting Coronavirus, a daily podcast on the COVID-19 outbreak. On today's podcast, I talked to Washington correspondent Suzanne Lynch about the politicisation of the virus in the United States. There, with an election looming, it hasn't proved possible, it seems, for politics to rise above traditional divisions to better deal with the coronavirus outbreak. The pandemic gets political. Is the partisan fight over when and how to reopen helping President Trump's re-election? The president has been incompetent the way in which he's responded to it. They are now saying they will not pass anything that does not include an insane laundry list of unrelated items. They want tax credits for windmills and solar power. No, I want it to be bipartisan and nobody's gonna be better than me, but when they attack me or the people, these incredible people behind me, I'm not going to let them get away with it. I can't do that. Okay, how about one or two? Suzanne Lynch, welcome back to the podcast. We'll talk about the complicated picture that is the US coronavirus response and how politics is affecting it in a minute. But first, Donald Trump has let slip that he's taking anti-malarial drug hydroxychloroquine for its supposed effectiveness in staving off infection with coronavirus. I happen to be taking it. I happen to be taking it. Hydroxychloroquine? I'm taking it. Hydroxychloroquine. Right now, yeah. A couple of weeks ago, I started taking it. It's worth hearing what Dr. Anthony Fauci, one of his top medical advisors, had to say about the drug. This from one month ago. The data are really just at best suggestive. There have been cases that show there may be an effect and there are others to show there's no effect. But Trump obviously believes he is best qualified to make medical decisions for himself. What about his responsibility to others and the implications for public health in letting it be known? Yes, this is quite an extraordinary moment on Monday evening. He was hosting executives from the restaurant industry and a small pool of journalists were invited in. And he, if you like, inadvertently offered this information. Nobody asked him, was he taking the drug, hydroxychloroquine? And he he announced Uh, to the media that he was indeed taking this treatment. He has been for the last 10 days or so. Um, As you say there, the the issue here is that the treatment has not been approved by the FDA. That's the main regulator here in the United States. Um, In fact, last month, they put out a statement advised warning against using this uh, treatment outside of a hospital setting or in clinical trials. It allowed that. But it said um, that the drug has not been shown to be safe and effective for treating or preventing COVID. Because, of course, as Trump told us again uh, this week, he's been tested for COVID and he doesn't actually have the virus. Uh, But he was asked about, you know, what evidence did he have of about the preventative uh, powers of the drug? And he said, this is the evidence. I get a lot of positive calls, phone calls about it. So this is Trump uh, declaring, you know, that he, in fact, appears to know or he's going with his own impulse here rather than the advice of his own FDA, of his own White House chief medical officer. And of course, as as you point out there, Deirdre, one of the the big issues in the immediate term is is what this is saying to the American public. He's a commander in chief. He is the most visible uh, American and he is going against the advice of his own federal agencies. And now this is classic Trump. He uh, sees himself as anti-establishment, um, uh, doing things his own way. Uh, and again, he doesn't like to back down. So he had claimed uh, that this drug could have anti-COVID anti, uh, powers. 
uh, and it's like he's a dog with a bone. He doesn't want to let that go. He's he's insisting that it still is. But the big problem is that we saw this back in March. He began at that stage to tout the um, the benefits of the of the drug. He called it a game changer. This was then followed up by a lot of presenters on Fox News. And actually what happened was that there was a run on hydroxychloroquine in the country um, because a lot of people take the drug for other um, ailments, for example, arthritis, malaria, lupus, etc. So now there's a fear here that this mis- you know, mixed messaging from the top may lead to a lot of Americans trying to stockpile this drug when those that actually need it will not be able to get a hand, get their hands on it. And this comes after uh, controversy over his suggestion that that bleach might be used uh, as a treatment too. Uh, We're talking about a wide swathe here, but is this his most irresponsible act so far? I think so. There were there were uh, reports, I I think, in the state of Maryland, for example, um, officials there said they had to feel several calls from the public after Donald Trump seemed to suggest that ingesting bleach would be some kind uh, of cure against coronavirus. Uh, but in this case, and, and this is the, this is the, you know, and some would say the genius of Donald Trump, sometimes his most outrageous ideas have a grain of truth in them. So in this case, hydroxychloroquine has been, a it's been a drug that's been around for decades and has been used uh, in other, for, for treating other ailments. Um, and there is research going on now, some of which has shown positive results that it could have an impact uh, positively on patients with COVID. So, you know, he's taking the chance that maybe, you know, in a few days, a few weeks, that the FDA could come out and uh, approve hydroxychloroquine and then he would be proved right. And he is right that certain doctors, frontline doctors, um, have suggested they've been taking it. Uh, but of course, the, the FDA in particular say say it's it's a particular risk for people with heart conditions. Um, now, Donald Trump himself, uh, you know, he's in his 70s, he doesn't drink, he doesn't smoke, but, you know, he's overweight. Uh, and a lot of medical experts here have pointed out, you know, he's a high risk individual in a lot of ways here. Um, but I think the fear from the medical community uh, is that, as I say, the problem with this, that drug is already available and that it may go um, to people who don't really need it. Meanwhile, Suzanne, he has turned his guns again on the WHO, threatening to to withdraw funding and describing it as a puppet of China. And they're really getting on his nerves, aren't they? Yeah, uh, this has been this has been brewing for quite a while. Uh, Obviously, Donald Trump, it's been quite an interesting uh, theme here in the last few months because Donald Trump has accused the WHO of being China centric. He has criticised China, famously called coronavirus the Chinese virus. But he has been reluctant to really personally criticise Xi Jinping, the Chinese leader who he said he's a very good relationship with. Um, But over uh, the last few days, this criticism of China and the WHO has really intensified. I think the the context is that the WHO was holding its annual meeting um, of its main forum um, virtually this week. And Donald Trump could have addressed that. He decided not to. Um, and, and and what's quite interesting about that is that, it, if you like, it gave China a, a bigger platform then. Uh, President Xi became the kind of big global leader who addressed all the participants in this conference. Now, China uh, announced it was donating $2 billion to coronavirus research, um, but Ch- uh, Trump, the Trump administration's health secretary, 
Alex Azar, he he um, addressed the forum and he was highly critical of the WHO saying that, you know, they need to be frank, that this outbreak spun out of control and there was a failure of the organisation to obtain information that the world needed. And that, that's seen as a, a barely veiled reference to China. And then uh, in the last, you know, 24 hours or so, Donald Trump released a letter that he had sent to the WHO. Now, people remember uh, he's already suspended funding to the WHO for 60 days. In this letter, he's going a step further. He is saying that he may have to reconsider U.S. membership of the body if it doesn't commit to major substantive reforms within 30 days. There seems to be quite an ultimatum there. Now, the letter itself reiterates many of the criticisms that we've heard from the Trump administration in recent weeks. He talks about the repeated missteps made by the WHO. But But the real kicker is this accusation that it has to what he says, demonstrates independence from China. And this has been Trump's argument that WHO is in the pocket of China, essentially, and America is annoyed that it is the biggest contributor to the agency. Um, So I think this China-US tension that has been bubbling on the surface, you know, there's a real sense that this this is increasing now. These are the two biggest economies in the world. They were already engaged in a trade war, essentially, before the coronavirus pandemic began. So I think a lot of people, there have been heavy hints from the Trump administration, but no new uh, announcements on sanctions, on trade. You know, that could be forthcoming. Um, There's been a lot of focus on China's role as a major global exporter of pharmaceuticals and medical devices um, in the last few weeks and months. So I think we're all here waiting for some signal from the, the Trump White House that there could be further restrictions coming in terms of trade negotiations. But as I say, I think Trump is holding back to an extent and maybe he instead is going to focus on WHO reform. And it does need to be said, he's got, so again, grain of a tru- truth here. The WHO is by no means a perfect organization. There are, are issues about Taiwan being excluded, um, obviously at the insistence of China. Uh, but, you know, at the, I think the international community feel that whatever your criticism of the WHO at the moment, it's not the time in the middle of a global pandemic to start withdrawing funding. Back home, a war of words has broken out between Trump and his predecessor, Barack Obama, uh, who was critical of his response to COVID-19. And we know that Trump spends most of his life in in conflict uh, with one or another. But this one is quite unusual, Suzanne, isn't it? Yeah, again, this is very interesting. Uh, Donald Trump has kind of upped his criticism of Barack Obama in recent days and weeks. Now, he obviously is facing Joe Biden, who's going to be the presumptive Democratic nominee in the election in November. Joe Biden was Barack Obama's vice president. So I think, you know, there's an obvious reason why he wants, uh, you know, to link Biden to Obama, etc. But it's it's really extraordinary. I mean, there's there's a kind of an unwritten rule here in the United States that presidents, sitting presidents, don't criticize their predecessors, you know, even if they've completely disagreed with them. Uh, it, it's also coinciding with um, a more public interventions by Obama. He has kept a relatively low profile for the last three and a half years. He's been living here in Washington. Um, he's spending a lot of time in Chicago too, um, but has not been speaking out as much as a lot of his his fans, if you like, would like. But since he endorsed Joe Biden in last month, uh, he's been a lot more vocal. Now, he is still held back a lot, but over the weekend, he gave two virtual address, commencement addresses. These were aimed at uh, students graduating who can't have their traditional graduation ceremony because of the coronavirus pandemic. Um, and he criticized, again, he didn't directly criticize Donald Trump, 
Um, but he said that, you know, a lot of people aren't even pretending to be in charge. More than anything, this pandemic has fully finally torn back the curtain on the idea that so many of the folks in charge know what they're doing. A lot of them aren't even pretending to be in charge. So um, I think Donald Trump has been watching this and he's decided to take on uh, Barack Obama. Look, he was an incompetent president. That's all I can say. Grossly incompetent. Thank you. Saying he's grossly incompetent. And he's accused Obama and Joe Biden of trying to take down his presidency. And that, that's his own words. And Donald Trump has coined a new phrase, Obamagate. This has kind of emerged into the public discourse here in the last few weeks. It's been amplified in Fox News. And essentially, it's quite complex because Trump himself has have to define it and kind of was equivocal. Mr. President, in one of your Mother's Day tweets, you appear to accuse President Obama of the biggest political crime in American history by uh. far. Those were your words. What crime exactly are you accusing President Obama of committing? And do you believe the Justice Department should prosecute him? Uh, Obamagate. It's been going on for a long time. It's been going on from before I even got elected. And it's a disgrace that it happened. And if you look at what's gone on, and if you look at now all of this information that's being released, and from what I understand, that's only the beginning. Uh, some terrible things happened, and it should never be allowed to happen in our country again. What it does appear to be linked to is, in recent weeks, Michael Flynn, who was Trump's first national security advisor, Trump fired him after less than four weeks in the job in the early days of his presidency for lying to Mike Pence about his contacts with the Russian ambassador. But in the last few weeks, Bill Barr, who's the attorney general, announced that the Department of Justice was pursuing charges against Mike Flynn, who you know, admitted his guilt to the FBI and decided to um, cooperate with the FBI during the Russia investigation. But in a very surprise move, Bill Barr announced, hang on, we're actually going to drop the charges against Mike Flynn. So this was seized on by Donald Trump and a lot of his supporters on conservative media as proof that the whole Russia investigation was a hoax, that Michael Flynn was an innocent American citizen who was spied on by intelligence agencies, who was investigated by the FBI and who had done nothing wrong. And the whole thing was a witch hunt against Donald Trump. And Donald Trump has taken that one step further and said that this investigation into Flynn um, was started in the final months of the Obama presidency, which it was. Um, and we know that, Don that Barack Obama himself warned Donald Trump about hiring Michael Flynn in a conversation that they had when during this transition period between when Donald Trump was elected and when he took up his position as president. So this Obamagate theory is now emerged as a major talking point on Fox News. Um, Donald Trump is tweeting it frequently. And I do expect it's going to become a major election strategy now in the next few months. You know, we had Locker Up about Hillary Clinton in 2016. I think Donald Trump is going to use Obama and this Obamagate theory um, as a rallying call for his, his supporters in the next few months. Now, you know, Barack Obama remains a very popular figure among a lot of people in this country. But Trump himself on Monday was quite interesting, said he was a more divisive figure than people thought. And, he, and he's right. There are a lot of Republicans. There's a, there's a theory, for example, that one of the reasons Donald Trump was elected was because of backlash among traditional Republican voters against uh, Barack Obama. So it'll be interesting to see, does it pay off or is it, you know, is it a misguided strategy by Trump? But we do expect that, you know, Obama's going to become some kind of a foe to Donald Trump in the next few months. And you'll be seeing what's going on over the next, over the coming weeks. But I, and I wish you'd write honestly about it, but unfortunately you choose not to do so. Yeah, John, please. Crime. What is the crime exactly that uh, you're accusing him of? You know what the crime is. The crime is very obvious to everybody. All you have to do is read the newspapers, except yours.
The politicisation of the virus response is extraordinary, Suzanne. But is it having a discernible negative impact on how the US is managing the virus or is it just a sideshow? Um, no, I think it is, actually. And I think what, without being too crude, I think there is a division between, as I say, red and blue states here, um, you know, Republican dominant states and ones that are more left wing in their approach. And basically, the more red um, the state is, you know, the more likely it is to have lifted restrictions. Now, in saying that, that also reflects the fact that a lot of Republican leaning states are more rural and don't have the same level of coronavirus infections that places like New York have. So, you know, to be fair, it makes sense that they are going to be the states that will lift restrictions more. But Donald Trump has continued to encourage states to reopen. Um, he's used his Twitter platform um, to say, you know, this, this is the American great American reopening. Um, and he's weighed in, pressurizing, if you like, some governors to start lifting restrictions. Um, and, you know, so what we can see now is, uh, you know, th there were there was lots of coverage of the protests by uh, by citizens uh, protesting against lockdown. I mean, they're still pretty minor. And, um, you know, there are polling, you know, there are, is polling suggesting that more Americans, you know, are more cautious than Donald Trump may may think. Um, so he has to be careful here. But it all depends on how this plays out in the next few months. Is there going to be a second wave in the early autumn, for example? Like that could be a serious difficulty for Trump as he heads into the November the 3rd election. You mentioned Donald Trump has uh, encouraged the reopening of states and that has started now. Are there any indications uh, at this early stage of how it's going? Yeah, it's quite interesting. So I think about... 48 out of yeah 48 states at this stage have announced some kind of reopening but i mean some of those are very very minor um but it's been quite interesting texas uh texas is run by republican governor greg abbott and it has announced a, a quite a substantial reopening in the last few days uh, but interestingly, over the weekend, there was a spike in cases in Texas. Um, just over 1,800 cases were reported on Sunday. Now, that was that was the highest daily case number since the pandemic began. So that has raised concerns about Texas. Um, and now the, the governor have has basically linked that to a rise in increased testing. Um, and in particular, officials in Texas are saying there are two specific counties where there had been an infection, an outbreak in meat plants, and, you know, there was ramped up testing in that area. Um, and so, you know, obviously there are going to be more cases. But I think that's a worrying sign uh, for people. Uh, this coming weekend is Memorial Day weekend in the United States. That's traditionally seen as the start of summer. And um, so there's lots of debate now about what's going to open in time for Memorial Weekend um, and will the beaches reopen. So quite relatively close to where I am in Washington. Um, there are a lot of beaches on, on the East Coast, you know, in Delaware, in Maryland, in North Carolina, Virginia. And what's happening there is that officials in, the, in those states are deciding whether to open beaches. It looks like most of them will open in some form. Um, but then you get this kind of interstate tension because the people in Virginia are saying, well, we need to open our beaches if in North Carolina they're opening theirs or else everyone's going to go to North Carolina. So I think uh, it, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. But it's still very um, checkered here in the United States. It really depends on where you're living um, in terms of how this is playing out. Obviously, New York City, the, the worst affected um, and New York State, you know, there's huge restrictions still there. Although the mayor of New York, Bill de Blasio, said uh, this week 
that he believed that it could start reopening the city um, in the first half of June if current trends continues. But, you know, we'll have to wait and see how that plays out. Suzanne, how, how many of these actions and statements and, and, and so on is Trump taking and making uh, with his eye on the, the November election? And what's the likely impact of those? Yeah, I think it's a lot. I mean, the the, the polling at the moment, um, I mean, it's, it, it's mixed, but it, it's not particularly good for Donald Trump, particularly in some of these swing states. Uh, so I think, obviously, a, a, an incumbent facing a massive pandemic which he's widely seen to have mishandled in election year is not a good thing. But talking anecdotally to people, I was speaking to people I know in Kansas, for example, um, lots of Trump supporters down there. And really, you know, they're saying they're not they're not going to blame Donald Trump for the coronavirus pandemic. They're really not. I, so I don't think um, a lot of his supporters are going to move away from him. In saying that, there has been some suggestions that older voters, that he is not as strong among that cohort as he once was, that would be a worry for him. And then, of course, you, you know, you need to look at the swing states, those key states that will make or break the election in November. I think what's really worrying for him is the economic out, outcome of this. And that is, of course, why Donald Trump is trying to reopen uh, the country. The economic out, you know, outcome has been very, has been worse than people have expected. More than 30 million people have signed on. There are also signs that it's particularly affects, uh, it is particularly affecting people in some of the swing states like Pennsylvania, like Ohio, well, not so much Ohio as a swing state, but those kind of Midwestern Rust Belt states. So that is a major concern. And the, some of the, the language from the Federal Reserve Chairman, Jay Powell, this weekend, he said that he believes that this kind of economic downturn could you know, last right into 2021. That's going to be a major problem for Trump if this continues. So at the moment, people are still hoping that the US economy will bounce back. But if, if this is more of a... Um, you know, not a V-shaped recovery, as they're saying, but, uh, you know, a m- much more embedded problem for the U.S. economy. Well, then I think that could really be a problem for him at the election. Now, Joe Biden has been keeping a low profile. One could argue maybe that's a good thing. Does he need to be out at the moment? You know, when there's a crisis, um, he's kind of quietly having phone calls, not making much of an impact. But, you know, he may be kind of holding his fire, if you like. Uh, but, you know, he is whether he's probably going to start using this as a talking point. There's been some ads out already criticising Donald Trump's leadership uh, on this and saying, you know, here we have a pandemic, he's mishandling it, 85,000 Americans are dead. Um, But again, I would be dubious about whether this would actually impact the hardcore Trump supporters. I think they're going to stick with the president, really, no matter what happens. Um, They're not going to blame him, same way as people in Britain are not going to blame Boris Johnson for a coronavirus pandemic. I just don't think they will. Um, I think they they vote for other reasons, more cultural reasons. Um, they like Trump for other reasons. Um, but look, as I say, the economic picture is getting quite dire here. And that is a warning sign for Trump in the next few months. What do the easing of restrictions look like in, in Washington, D.C., where you're based? I mean, what can yeah. you do this week that you couldn't do a few weeks ago, for example? Well, Deirdre, to be honest, we've been very strict here. Um, Washington, D.C. is a very unique place. It's not actually a state, the District of Columbia. So it's quite a small um, square area. But we're surrounded by Virginia and Maryland and other states. So like less than two miles from where I'm talking to you now is the state of Virginia begins. So 
the problem here, and the mayor, as a result, the mayor of DC, and Mayor Muriel Bowser, she's got a lot of power here, and she's been leading the effort. Now, I was writing about this before in the early days of this pandemic. I mean, Washington, D.C., people think of the big, the fabulous buildings, the White House, you know, the center of American power. It's also got a lot of poor areas. It's one of the most, um, it's got that one of the highest percentage of African-Americans in the country for any city. Um, and there's a lot of areas in the city that are quite poor. Um, and I think Mayor Muriel Bowser is worried about reopening, that this is going to you know, disproportionately affect those communities, mainly communities of colour. Uh, so to answer your question, it's very, very strict where I am. Um, nothing really is open except supermarkets. The one big difference I see uh, in comparison to Ireland is the use of face masks. They are pretty much ubiquitous here. You cannot get into any uh, any shop, any supermarket without wearing face masks. So they're essential. They're obligatory. Um, I've been one of the many people who've now ordered kind of slightly funky uh, face mask designer cloths by a friend of mine who's friend in New York who's trying to make a living has been making them. I got them posted here. But um, I've been going out for walks. Obviously, like everyone else, uh, there are restrictions. Um, there are not as many restrictions on who you can see. Uh, but be, basically, people are keeping to themselves. So um, when I went out of the weekend, it was quite busy. But I really noticed uh, that everybody was wearing face. Most people were wearing face masks even outside. And so I think that's the biggest change I see. A lot of the restaurants here are doing takeout delivery, curbside delivery, as it's called. Um, but apart from that, I think the biggest the biggest impact are things like Uber drivers. Um, I mean, this this city runs on Uber and Lyft. And that has obviously completely collapsed. Um, so look, Washington DC is pretty strict. The, where, where it stands at the moment is that the mayor has said that the current restrictions are in place until June the 8th. She said she may change them if things improve, but I think that they are very much coordinating with the neighboring states. And, and that's the problem here. There's just, it, it's this ridiculous situation, whereas I could probably get into a car now and drive to the other side of the country and you know pop up in California and nobody would stop me. And that whole federal system in the US has now been exposed. Um, so, you know, how are they going to police this? I don't know, particularly somewhere in D.C. where you could easily go across the border. Now, Virginia and Maryland are still pretty strict themselves, but I think we will be seeing a coordinated approach by all these neighboring states when they do really start to reopen here. But it won't be, you know, before the middle of June, I would suspect. Well, don't worry, the face masks are, are starting to take off here now, too, Suzanne. <laughs> Thanks very much for that. My thanks to Declan Conlon who produced today's podcast and thanks for listening. Stay up to date with the latest developments at irishtimes.com. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>